Hello and welcome to Dior Common Thread. In this series, we'll explore the constellation of creatives around Kim Jones, Dior Men's Artistic Director, who has masterminded some of the most dynamic and exciting collaborations in fashion. I am Ed Tang, co-founder of Art Bureau, a New York and Hong Kong-based art advisory, and now your host. In each episode of this show, I'll be bringing you conversations with some of the artists who have collaborated with Kim at Dior. From art and fashion to nature and technology, we'll discuss their influences, creative process, and everything else. The multimedia artist Daniel Arsham was invited by Kim Jones to collaborate on the summer 2020 Dior Men's Collection. The result was both a striking and thoughtful tribute to the storied history of Christian Dior and a bold foray into new materials and fabrication. This is typical of Arsham's work. Unfazed by conventional genres, he merges elements of architecture, performance, film, and art. Tune in to find out more about Daniel and the many hats he wears as artist, collector, and collaborator. Hi, Daniel. Um, I'm thrilled to be speaking with you today. Let's dive right in and begin with the camera, which you've said started your interest in art when your grandfather gave you a Pentax K1000 early on. Was it the photographic image specifically, or was it looking at the world through your own viewfinder that sparked your interest? Yeah, I think it was a kind of combination of the object itself, right? The camera itself, which is this sort of heavy um, technological object that has a real touch to it and a feel to it. You know, when you press the shutter on that, there's a almost a response to that that has generates a feeling, right? Um, and I think also... The simplicity of, of taking uh, photos with a few different types of input, there's the lens, there's the aperture, there's the shutter speed. Those are the three things that control the image. And I found that sort of freeing in a way. And I think the images were sort of the first things that I thought of as being artwork in a way, or some view of the world that could be subjective. So in many ways, it was a creative and technical outlet for you. Now, the camera is a device that captures time. And as a theme... Time has become a thread across your many different bodies of work. I'm curious, have you always been obsessed with time? I think the idea of like time travel and space travel and these sorts of things that were in science fiction and films that I watched as a child were very influential. In some ways, we are concerned with the physical things that surround us, and we all gain obsessions around those. But the thing that actually factors most into how we live our lives is our perception of time and how we manage it. And I think that my understanding of that came largely about through working with uh, Merce Cunningham and his use of time in a dance performance. What was it like working with him straight out of school in 2004? What impact did it have on you as an artist? I mean, it was a bit terrifying <laughs> as a young artist to be working with such a legend. He was 60 years older than me when we began working and had obviously been part of a lineage of modern thought, modern art, modern architecture and dance and music. And so my interaction with him was very much about learning and trying to understand how he had achieved what he did, as well as the potential uses of his method, which was very different from how dance had been composed before that. He would create the choreography 
he would ask an artist to make the scenography, the set design and the costumes and lighting. And he would ask a musician to create the score. But none of us would know what the other one was doing. And this was very much an idea largely based on John Cage's understanding of chance procedure, right? So like rolling the dice to find an outcome that you might not otherwise have found. And uh, this was a in some ways, collaborating with him without actually collaborating with him, right? Because I never knew what he was actually making. <laughs> yes, well, you were learning from the best and how he, you know, his vision was sort of all-encompassing. You famously graduated from the Cooper Union in 2003. You've said that it was there that you learned how to make things rather than how. What is the difference for you? In school, I certainly learned some level of craft, the basics of casting and, and painting technique and color theory. But I think largely what that school taught is how to make meaning, right? And how to communicate things through, through other means beyond language. That was kind of the largest takeaway from there for me. So much of your work is about you know, the in-between states, resurrection and degradation, everyday objects and remnants of archaeology. Why do you like that gray space between certainty? I think even tracing the earliest works that I made coming out of school, I always had the instinct to allow the works to sort of float in time, right? So they were depictions of architectural scenarios existing in a natural kind of bucolic scene, but there was never people in the images and there was no link to a particular time period. And I felt that this allowed the paintings to be more open and the potential for meaning in them could be found by the viewer. And I've continued that in other works where we have a link to something that we can grasp onto in the work, right? We have a, an entrance point, but once we're there, the works can lead in many different directions. It strikes me that the past two years haven't actually slowed you down. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Just this year, you've had five solo shows across three continents. You were just as active in 2020. How did you find that motivation? Mm -hmm. I've always tried to show up at the studio at 9 a.m. and leave at 6 and have that be a job in a way, right? Like treat it like a practice that requires you being there whether you have things to do or not. And during lockdown, especially, you know, in New York, I actually found my ability to focus was enhanced because I was not distracted by travel or, you know, <laughs> events and seeing people all the time. And I really got back into the studio and sort of returned to painting. I hadn't shown paintings. I hadn't made paintings in almost 10 years. But that was the origin of my studies in school was painting. So it was a kind of incredible way to get back to that. You know, being in lockdown in New York was very strict. I wasn't able to even come to the studio with other people, and I wasn't able to work on the type of sculptural works that I've become known for over the last uh, decade. And so this return to painting, return to drawing, sort of also reinvigorated some of the earlier ideas present in my work 20 years ago. So you almost became more rigorous as the world was flipped upside down. It's very interesting that you mentioned about your return to painting. I believe the outcome of those paintings were part of your most recent show at the Koenig Gallery in Berlin titled Unearthed. The exhibition included these really dramatic monochromatic paintings measuring 19 feet tall alongside sculptures in various sizes and a bunker-like space. How rewarding was it to you to be returning to practicing in 2D, if you like? 
early in my career, painting was a way to realize ideas that might not be possible physically because of space, <laughs> you know, being in a small studio when I finished school or just the technical know-how to actually build these things. So painting was a way for me to enter these imaginary scenarios. And Koenig Gallery is a former brutalist church, right? So the architecture is kind of harsh, you know? It's, uh, the walls are made of crushed concrete that have been blended and sprayed, so it has almost this like rough mud-like texture. And the ceilings in the gallery are probably 80 to, or 100 feet tall. It's hard to imagine the scale without being there, I have to say. Yeah. Well, imagine a church, you know? A church is meant to create an awe-inspiring environment, and the manipulation of light and space is something, you know, obviously present in religious architecture generally. As an artist, you know, you go into a space, and the architecture can have a huge impact on what you're, you're showing in the space. So it was certainly a challenge, but creating these massive paintings. I mean, each of these paintings took three to four months to complete. So there's only three of them in the show. But it was amazing for me also just to see them. The paintings were so large, they had to be shipped, uh, rolled, and actually stretched inside of the gallery. Yeah, on site. Wow. Well, given your love of architecture, it kind of was the perfect context. You know, also so much of your work is about the built environment. So let's talk about, you know, environments. We know you as a collector as well, as being an artist. And your weekend home in Long Island was recently published in the Architectural Digest. And it was an architecturally significant home, later revamped by Snow Architecture, the collaborative practice that you co-founded. There we see different sides of you. Family man, collector of antiquity and design, you know, from Scarpa to Tori Sotsas, Ronarad and Charlotte Perrian to, I think, artworks by the likes of Alex Gardner. How important are objects and artworks for you in creating a sense of home or a sense of environment? Yeah, I think collecting all manner of things is a way for me to sort of, you know, understand the world, understand variation. You know, many of the furniture and design objects that I collect are chairs. And I think a chair is a sort of beautiful balance between design and functionality. Artwork obviously falls into that. A painting can take millions of different forms and meanings. But I also you know, spend a lot of time thinking about the architecture of that house, how it's situated in the landscape. The landscape design itself is built to enhance right, the gesture that Norman Jaffe made into the landscape there. And... Uh, you know, I see the whole thing as kind of one big project in a way. I'm sure it kept you very busy. <laughs> Your recent work coming out of lockdown, you mentioned you didn't have much time or ability to go to the studio and have access to materials. So you started working with Play-Doh, which led to the Objects for Living collection with Friedman Bender. It was a series of 10 sculpted pieces in wood, resin, and stone. And I think you very aptly refer to as furniture for the Flintstones in your recent uh, FT Weekend cover story. Did that process of being almost childlike in your work bring something new to it as well? I think in a lot of my work, I've tried to find the stance where children look at the world. You know, they misrecognize things. They use architecture in ways that it's not supposed to be used. And the furniture really came out of just being with my two sons during lockdown and sculpting Play-Doh with them. 
you know, sculpting cars. And at a certain point, I started to think about, you know, what is the next evolution of the furniture that I would like to make? And the house there sits on the beach. So there are these rock-like forms, which I collected on the beach, combined them with these Play-Doh forms, and came up with a <laughs> 10 or so designs. It was a way of working without having all of the assets that are normally available to me. So it was a sort of challenge of form and function. I think the result was very whimsical and sculptural. You know, you were talking about the pebbles you found. But what's also extremely interesting is you designed those objects specifically with the intention of using them. You really looked at ergonomic studies in, you know, creating those chairs. And, and I think you talked about the bed specifically where it's a design incorporating storage and charging ports and different types of lights. How do you balance the practicalities with creativity or do you see them as one and the same as a designer? Yeah, that bed was the most complex design object that I've ever made without looking that way, right? I think, especially in the evening, lighting is so important for creating a feeling, a mood in a space, right, an ambiance. And especially in the bedroom, I've created 10 different lighting scenarios that are present within that bed that allow it to create a soft, warm light or cool light. There's reading lights, there's task lights, but the whole thing feels very balanced, you know? And I think part of it was about creating a functional object that does what it needs to do. It has drawers for keeping things in the bedside. It has a charging port for your phone. And all of these things feel very practical, but balanced. It doesn't look like a technological object, even though the wiring diagrams for that bed are four pages long. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all speak about working from home. It seems like, you know, whoever has that bed is working from bed, <laughs> uh, rather. Your studio is also a big operation with, I think, over 30 people. And of course, you've worked with a growing number of brands and creatives, including Ramoa, Tiffany, Uniqlo, Wallpaper Magazine. Do you enjoy working alone or is working with others an intrinsic part of what you do? I think I need people around. I need engagement and conversation, collaboration. I need people's opinions and their abilities, their skills, right? Which in many cases, the idea of collaboration is combining one and one that equals three, where you have somebody that you're working with who has the ability to create things that you yourself are not able to. And I think collaboration for me is also about learning, learning how meaning is made in other ways. In fashion, this is a very interesting way of creating. And, you know, also just learning about craft in all of these different entities that I've worked. Most of them are building things, physical things that exist in the world. And I, I find that inspiring. Well, it strikes me that whatever it is that you do, there's always a sense of clarity. You know, it's unmistakably, you know, a Daniel Asham. With such a broad range of brands and collaborations, do you ever worry about, you know, your vision perhaps becoming diluted? I see them all as, you know, art projects in a way. Obviously, every artwork that I'm making is different from the one before, and the collaborations feel no different in that way. They're engaging with an object or an idea, oftentimes that people already know or have some sense of. And I think one of the other big aspects of collaboration for me is audience and growing audience that is not an art audience. 
with a capital A. The collaborators that I often work with have their own followings, their own audience that understands those universes in a different way. And I think the combination of, of audiences is where things get really interesting. Your collaboration with Kim Jones as director of um, Dior Men for the summer 2020 collection was a perfect union of traditional craftsmanship and technology. Looked at the past, but also propelled us into the future, if you like, with very cutting-edge fabrications and treatments. Can you tell us more about the behind-the-scenes? What was the design process like and how involved you were? You know, Kim approached me with the idea uh, of doing this collaboration, which was very much around the Dior archive, going back into some of the history of Christian Dior himself, his interest in art, background as a gallerist. And once we were there, started to think a lot about materials. And Kim was obsessed with the way to translate some of the crystallization and materiality that was present in my work into these garments and, and other objects. The fascinating part to me was to see how a wealth of, of knowledge in the technical aspect of the creation of these pieces could be leveraged to really realize some incredible things. In a lot of ways, you know, I think Kim was super respectful both of something that Dior might have himself may have thought of or, or approved, as well as my universe. You know, he told me from the beginning, we're going to make a lot of samples, way more than we're going to actually implement. And it's important, or it was important to Kim that everything felt right to me. And I, I can remember there was one instance where uh, we were in the studio here in New York and we were looking through some samples and I was a little bit on the fence and he just read it immediately. And he was like, I can tell you're not into that. Let's just, we're not going to go in that direction. That instinct in collaboration is also important as well. Yeah, it's about being thoughtful and respectful of different approaches. As someone known for your research interests, I imagine digging through the legendary Dior archives must have been incredible. And I think your take on the Dior, Christian Dior's clock and telephone from the atelier, as well as your interpretation of the Dior newspaper print and saddlebag, really showed your, your understanding of the house. Following the collaboration, I think some of the future relic works that you made in response were sold in the Dior stores. I love the sense of, you know, this dance between art and commerce outside of a gallery context. You know, going back to what you were saying about dressing a different set of audience and following, do you think this crossover introduced a whole new type of audience to your work? Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, there is a fashion audience that certainly is interested in the art world, and that overlap is not really anything new. It's been present certainly throughout history, but definitely in the 1960s to the 1980s when many artists were collaborating with designers. I think anytime you can expand audience and bring art to them in places that they might not expect to see it, right? I mean, when you walk into a museum or, or into a gallery, your mindset is such that you understand you're seeing art, right? The objects that are around you are, are placed in order for you to interpret them. But if you find those objects out in the world, in everyday life, the, the context around them is very different. And I think it creates some unique scenarios uh, when you can do that. Speaking of scenarios, an artist's relationship with his gallery is, is hugely important. You've been represented by the gallerist Emmanuel Peritan since 2005. How has your relationship 
evolved over the years? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, we sort of grew up together. The gallery was certainly established when I began working with him, but nowhere near on the level and global presence that he has now. He was very early, obviously, in supporting my work. And I think one of his big skills as a gallerist is the ability to recognize it's not even talent, it's just drive, actually, in order to, to push things you know, into the future. And he, Emmanuel has had great success with a number of artists beginning before they were known really at all, from Maurizio Catalan, Takashi Murakami. He's had that ability to sort of recognize an artist's vision and drive before the artist may have even seen that themselves. We've been talking about art. Let's talk about the world of sports as well. Late in 2020, it was announced that you had become the creative director of the Cleveland Cavaliers, first of its kind in the NBA. What is your role there, and how would you put the Daniel Asham stamp on a basketball team? Yeah, so in some ways there, it's less about adding my universe into it, and it's more about you know thinking the way that a creative director might and enhancing the brand that's already there, right, and the, the ethos of what that is. I'm third-generation Clevelander. My father was born there, my grandfather was born there, I was born there, and I, the team has always been a special part of my family's universe. I had an inherent knowledge of it. The team won a championship in 2016, which was a huge moment for sports in Cleveland. That came about largely because the owners of the team, the Gilbert family, are art collectors, and they own some of my work, and we were discussing, well, I was basically telling them you should change this, the logos, the jerseys, the, you know, there's more that you can do there. And that turned into a discussion around, you know, what could actually be done uh, in this context. So there are a couple of things that I'm interjecting my universe into the team, but not in ways that would alter the core ethos uh, of the Cavs. My job there, as I see it, is to really distill everything that the team has built, both visually um, and on the court over the last uh, few decades. I find it fascinating how, you know, your reach has spilled into the world of sports and, you know, spectatorship. It's a completely different arena. Speaking of a different arena, you also collect cars. Tell us more about your obsession, I think, specifically with Porsche. Yes. <laughs> since, since I was a child, <laughs> uh, the 911 has been an obsession of mine and, you know, sort of an, an aspirational goal. It wasn't until I was, you know, in my early 30s that I was able to acquire one. And I've sort of been building up a collection in collaboration with Porsche uh, since then. I've done a number of collaborations directly with them and sort of uh, been fortunate to be able to enter, you know, their archive and uh, begin to build um, some larger projects with them. For me, when we talked before about collecting and the idea of, of really understanding variation, the Porsche 911 was debuted in 1965, and that body shape and that model car still exists today. It's gone through multiple uh, iterations, and I feel like the car itself, as it morphs through these different decades, it really captures something about the the zeitgeist, right, of those eras. You know, I ha I own a 1973. Uh, RS 2.7, which was a very specific car. When I drive that car, it's like being in a time machine. You know, the smell of the car, the the seats are made of corduroy. 
There's a type of leather that's used, and everything about the car, even the color of it, feels period. And I think that's a, a magical thing about those cars as well. Would you say collecting cars is similar to collecting art and objects? Yeah, I think knowledge of these things. You know,、uh, I have a few friends who begun to collect art in certain ways, and sometimes they'll send me something, and I'll give my opinion on it, and I'll say, look. Unless you're going to completely dive in and understand this artist's entire universe, it's not even worth getting into it. This is part of the reason why I only collect Porsche. I haven't entered Ferrari universe or or Aston Martin or or any of these other、uh, historical vehicles. It's I want to completely understand this universe, and I feel like by by focusing on it, I can do that. So it's ultimately being focused and eyes on the prize. I also want to ask you about technology. You have said I'm interested in exploring what technology can do in the 21st century. It's a fascinating new arena that allows my practice to expand beyond the artistic mediums that exist in the physical world and reach new audiences. What is the most exciting tech development you think will change your art? And our lives.、Oh, I mean, there's so many things happening. It's a big question. <laughs> yeah, so many things happening. I think, you know, recent things that I've engaged with. One of them is, you know, blockchain technology and the NFT sculptures that I've made. Particularly something within the Ethereum blockchain, which is called a smart contract, which allows the creation of NFTs that actually function over periods of time. And so these are. Artworks that could not be created in any other way. There's a whole universe also about equity for artists and being able to capture value in their works over time through the use of of、uh, blockchain, and that's a whole podcast, you know, conversation in itself. And I think the other really interesting thing that I've engaged with on in the physical world more recently is this project that I've done with Kohler, which is a 3D printed ceramic. It's in the infancy of their development of this technology, but there's a number of pretty radical things about it. The first of which is the ability to create forms, right, for a designer that are not possible in traditional casting methods that you would find in a, in a sink or a bathtub historically. The second is the dramatic reduction in water use for the creation of these and waste. There's zero waste, so you're only using the amount of material that you need to create the sinks. There's both a, an ecological imperative built into the works, as well as a design advancement. And I think as those things overlap, it becomes a super interesting space for me. Yeah, I mean the the way you approach, I think every project is quite apparent. How it's forward thinking, expansive, and multi layered. It's all very complex. As we near the end of this conversation. I just have a few more questions. You have an enormous social media following, with more than a million followers on Instagram. Do you see that as an expression or extension of your work and how you communicate with your own audience? I see it as a vehicle for reaching audiences that don't live in places where they might encounter my work, or frankly, don't come from a background where art is part of their everyday experience. Social media has been this kind of great equalizer of audience, and I have teenagers in Korea and adults living in Kansas following the work. This ability to reach 
vast audiences is one of the most incredible parts about social media. It needs to be used in a way that is beneficial. We've certainly seen you know, some of the darker elements of <laughs> that universe, but as an extension of my ability to reach audiences, it's been a pretty useful tool. I mean, it must be very rewarding to reach such a vast number of people. But as an artist, what's the most gratifying aspect for you? Is it when you see your works in galleries or museums, collectors' homes, or retail platforms, or simply someone clicking a like on your Instagram page? You know, I've built my life and my art practice as something, obviously, that I enjoy, that is fulfilling in many different ways. The creation of the work itself is probably the origin of my interest in it, right? A need almost to realize these visions and these ideas. But the interaction with audiences in many ways completes the work, right? If I thought about this before, if nobody would ever see my work, would I still make the same type of work? Would I make it in scale, in the scale that I do? The answer is probably no, you know? I think the work is really made for audiences. So it's this duality between... So an artist needs an audience. An artist needs an audience. Maybe not all, but many. For you, at least. Now, last question I have. You wear so many different hats as an artist, designer, collaborator, businessman, collector. What is there left to conquer? Oh, so many things. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's all of these areas. Do you want to design a spaceship? time travel machine yeah i wouldn't say no to that but i think that as a vehicle if working in different areas is a vehicle for me to understand things and um, sort of live within them um there's every there's millions of other potential projects right well on that note daniel it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you for giving us a glimpse into your world and thank you all for listening join us on dior common thread on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.